hey, good morning. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I hope you ate way too much turkey. Uh, I hope if you were cheering for a specific football team that they won. Uh, I hope that uh, you just had a great time if you connected with family, uh, that, that you enjoyed each other around the holiday table. It's exciting as we are entering into the holiday season. Uh, we're going to have different things going on. The plans for Christmas are kind of this. Uh, the 19th is Christmas Sunday, and so we'll have our Christmas Sunday service. It's my shortest sermon of the year. That night, we will have our uh, candlelight carol service, and then we will have the Christmas podcast that will release on Christmas Eve as well. All right, so we're going to be starting a, uh, starting, starting a study in the Gospel of Matthew this week, so you can be turning there to get ready. Uh, the small groups will be meeting throughout the week. We have one before Sunday morning service. We have one online on Wednesday nights. Uh, we have a young adults on Tuesday nights. And so if you want more information, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. Last of all, we are always taking food, non-perishable food donations for the Wichita Family Center, and we are taking toy donations for the Toy and Joy program for Christmas presents for underserved kids in our community. And it's a great uh, opportunity uh, to be a church that cares about this community, and so uh, you can bring them to the church, and if you uh, aren't able to come on a Sunday morning, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com, and we can arrange uh, a drop-off. So that's what's going on around the church. And we are going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew starting this morning. Why don't you turn your Bibles there as we study God's Word together. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the mother of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom. Jerom, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiai, Sheltiai, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elkim, Elkim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mahathan. Mahathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word. This morning, we begin a study of the gospel of Matthew. 
Matthew was, of course, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers called the Disciples. He was a tax collector. He was a traitor to his own people because he was collaborating with their occupying force. It's one thing to pay taxes to your own country. I like good roads. I like a sewer system that works. I like all of these things that are are necessary. I like paying our firefighters and police officers. It's a whole other thing to pay taxes to your occupiers, that your money goes back to build not your community, but it's building the community in Rome and in the empire that has conquered you. And Matthew was a collaborator with them. And how he made his money was the Romans said, you need to collect $10. Matthew would say, you owe me $15 in taxes. And he'd skim that $5 off the top. They lived well. They lived sinfully. They were outcasts from society. And we'll get into more of that as we go through the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew begins with the history of Jesus' family. Matthew begins with the history of Jesus' family. It's hard to explain to our 2021 Western American Oregonian way of thinking how many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents. To be honest, I can only go back to my great-grandfather, Alexander Dalhanek. He was the last Dalhanek born in Europe in 1903, and he came to America when he was just a young baby and built a life. But I only go back to him. I know that his mother's name was Hieronic. That's about all I know. I know that they were from the kingdom of Bohemia, but beyond them, I've seen the family tree, but I couldn't tell you my own family's history beyond a few generations. In the Jewish mind and culture, your family history was who you were. Children were instructed to repeat and repeat and repeat until they had it memorized, their lineage. They could say, I am the son of this person who was the son of this person who was the son of this person. They could say it backwards and forwards. You knew where you came from. Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish or Hebraic audience. And for them, it would have been incredibly important to know this information. So why do we need to know it, you might say? Here's what I would say. It's not so much that we need to know it, although we're going to find there's a lot of stuff in there. But we need to know what's important to the world around us. We're beginning a study of the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And we have this good news, this life-saving good news, this life-changing good news, this heart-transforming good news. Luke wrote primarily to non-Jewish people who grew up in a kind of a Greco-Roman culture. Matthew wrote primarily to people growing up in a more Jewish culture. John and Mark kind of split the difference. We got to know who we're speaking to. How can we speak this good news to young people, to old people, to people with this point of view, that point of view? How can we 
hear the questions they're asking? How can we answer them? And so that's something we'll kind of get in the bigger picture when we get into Matthew's gospel more over the next weeks and months. But he starts off by saying that Jesus, the Messiah, was the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the three kind of key things I noticed, and by the way, as you read through this genealogy, the more you read the scripture, the more these names are going to stand out. Oh, I remember that guy. Ooh, that guy. Okay. You know, King Uzziah. And the first thing I think of is Isaiah chapter 6. You know, Boaz. And the first thing I think of is the book of Ruth, which we studied on Sunday mornings a few years ago. But there were three sort of markers that stood out to me. There were the obscure, the messy, and the marginalized. The obscure, the messy, and the marginalized. The obscure. We think of Abraham as a big deal. If you grew up in the church, there was a song that every church kid knows how to sing. Father Abraham has many sons and many sons at Father Abraham. And there was sort of a march uh, hand motion thing you did with it. Abraham is a big deal. It's a big deal the world over because he's a big deal not just to our faith, but the Muslims, big deal. The Jews, huge deal. Abraham's a big deal deal. But not in Genesis chapter 12. When God calls a man named Abram who lived in obscurity and he was not famous in his own lifetime. But God said to this man, Abram, leave the land of your fathers and go to the land I will show you, the promised land. And so God called this man out of obscurity. He later changed his name from Abram to Abraham, entered in a covenant relationship with him, and said, out of you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But Abraham was a totally obscure nobody. God didn't go to New York City or London or Tokyo or Beijing or Rome or any of these major world cities and find the most famous person and say, you're the best, you're the brightest, you're the most well-educated, you're the best-looking, you're the most well-known, that's who I'm going to use because people will pay attention. No, he went to somewhere and someone that no one had ever heard of and brought Abram out of obscurity. And Matthew starts there. Abraham. And then he begins to go down through the generations and he comes to David. And you can on your own time, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We think of King David now because everybody knows who he is. David versus Goliath. You know, that's the highlight. And David versus Bathsheba, or David and Bathsheba, that's the bad one. We'll get to that in a minute. But he was an obscure guy. When Samuel, the prophet, was told by God, I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of a man named Jesse, and one of his sons, you're going to anoint him the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes. He says, do you have sons? He said, yeah, I've got sons. Bring them in. So he brings them in, and Samuel sees the oldest son, and he's tall, and he's good-looking, and he's, he's young, but he's not too young, you know, the whole thing. And, he, oh, this must be the guy. And God says, no. Well, the next son is also very promising. And you know what? He's not as tall as the older son, but he's better spoken. So you know that's good. Kings need to be able to speak. God says no. And on and on down the line it goes, and God says no to every one of Jesse's sons. And Samuel's at a loss. What do I do, God? You told me to come here and anoint one of these kids. And he looks at Jesse and he says, do you have any other children? And he said, yeah, I've got my youngest son, David. Uh, he's out in the field watching the sheep. David was so 
unimportant in the pecking order of his family that when the prophet of Israel, and Samuel was the prophet, he was the main guy in Israel. And when he comes to your house in Bethlehem, it's a town that's not important. And, and Jesse was not an important person, even within his own town, probably. And, and yet he comes and he says, bring your sons. And David is so unimportant that Jesse doesn't even think to call him in. The prophet surely can't want him. Samuel wants to talk to my older boys. David does, you know, he's not old enough to matter yet. And then they bring David in and God says, Samuel, that's the one. And Samuel anoints David and we know what happened to him, right? And he becomes the most important king in Israel's history ever. But he was an afterthought. He wasn't just obscure because, you know, you read about Abram and Abram had money and, and he had uh, some possession and he had some agency of his own. David had none of that. He was just an, an afterthought. He wasn't a has-been. He's not even going to happen. And then it goes down. It mentions Joseph. Now, not Joseph like Joseph in, the, you know, the, in Genesis, but, but Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. You can read in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, when they took Jesus to be dedicated in the temple, it says that they offered the sacrifice prescribed and they offered two turtle doves. It's not just in the song, right? Like this is where they get this from, but why does that matter? Because in the old covenant law, you were to offer a sacrifice and it was supposed to be what? A bull or a goat. But God had a social safety net in place. And one of the things was if a person was too poor to afford the sacrifice, then they could get a bird, which was basically free. You could take a bird and offer that as a sacrifice. So when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to be dedicated to the temple, the sacrifice they made is one of the poor. Joseph was the descendant of kings, but he was a person who was impoverished, living in the Galilee. So I, I don't know, you know, how you see America, right? But, but we know that there are some places in America that are just deemed more important than others, right? You know, I, I tell people I grew up in Seattle, but the truth is that when I was in kindergarten, we couldn't afford to live in Seattle anymore, so we moved. And I grew up in Everett, Washington. And if you grew up in the Seattle area in the 80s and the 90s, right, it was one thing to say you're from Seattle. It's another thing to say you're from Everett. But even Everett's pretty good compared to, like, Cedra Woolley. Uh, yeah, and uh, Granite Falls, which is where my family is actually, uh, my grandparents lived. So, like, if you say you, you've, you were born and raised in Granite Falls, it's like, eek. The, uh, the idea is, you know, in, in here in this area, right, where, where, where do you live? Oh, I live in Estacada. Oh, okay. You know, the, we have these places where you're from, and that then defines you. Joseph, he might be the son of kings, but somewhere between Zerubbabel, you might remember Zerubbabel. We talked about him back in, when we studied the book of Haggai. He was the governor of Judah, the leader of Israel, as they started to rebuild the temple. Somewhere they went from leading the nation to an impoverished 
carpenter who lives in a backwater, a part nobody cares about. I've been watching this show on Disney Plus called Port Protection Alaska. It's a National Geographic program. And, and they're up not in Juneau, not in Anchorage, not in Fairbanks, you know. They're, they're in Port Protection, Alaska, which is this little place. There's no roads to get there. You have to either take a boat or a sea, you know, a seaplane. They're all living below the poverty line. They're all just like scraping by to make it in that harsh environment, right? But imagine that one of them said, oh yeah, my great, 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 great grandfather used to be the president of the United States. You'd say, what happened? Because presidents tend to have a little bit of money. Somewhere along the way, that part of the descendants of King David fell on hard times and Joseph was just living below the poverty line. So Jesus' family history is full of the obscure people who were afterthoughts, people who nobody thought anything of. And maybe that's how you identify. And you say, yeah, that's me, my family, you know. Government cheese was like looking up, you know. We, we, we wanted uh, just to like have some of that, you know. We we, we would have thought living, you know, in the worst part of, of that neighborhood was still better than where we came from. It's not just the obscure that's part of Jesus' family tree. It's the messy. Rahab is listed as the mother of, of Boaz. And actually, I mean, I'll get into this in a little bit, but she's the grandmother. But that's a whole other point. But you can go and read Joshua chapter 2. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a, a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. When the people of Israel were going into the promised land and they were coming up against the city of Jericho, uh, Joshua, the leader of the people, sent spies in, and the spies, somebody found out that there were spies in the city, so they had to go hide. So where did they go? They went to the house of a prostitute and said, hey, we need to hide here. And so she hid them, and she said, but I know that God is with you. And when you come and conquer Jericho, I want my family to be spared because we helped you. And God spared them. And they took their place in the people of Israel. They, they became people of God. But that's messy. Who was your grandma? She was a hooker. And then it mentions Judah had these two sons, Perez and Zerah, in verse 3. And it says their mother was Tamar. You might remember this from a couple years ago. We studied the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 38. Judah had this son, and he married a gal named Tamar. But he was a wicked man. He was a wicked man, and he died. And he died with no children, because God killed him. God's, this guy is so wicked, God killed him. We don't know how it happened or what, but, but the the, uh, the, the blame, for lack of a better word, I'm not blaming God for whatever he did because I'm sure it was right and true, but God killed him. So if you had no children, the custom in that day was that the, the widow, uh, and, and I, I don't have time to get into the custom on this, but just trust me that this is not a bad situation if done right. So the custom was that the widow was to be married by the next son. If, if the guy had a brother who wasn't married, then the brother was to marry the widow. And then the first child that they had, the first son that they had, that would be considered the son of the man who died. And then all the other kids the man had, that would be considered uh, his, his descendants. And it, it, again, I don't have time to get into why this was what it was, but it, it made sense. But Onan, who was the brother who had to marry Tamar, he said, hey, any kid we have, 
If we only have one son, it's not going to be mine. It's going to be my brother's. And you know what's going to happen is they will inherit everything. My own son will inherit. He'll have a higher position in the family than I will. Again, I don't, it's like watching Downton Abbey where you're trying to understand this person outranks this person even though that person's a kid. And, and look, I'm not trying to get into what's going on here, but the point was Onan was also a wicked man. And so he did everything he could to not have kids because of his own wickedness. And so God killed him. So Judah said, I'm not going to... Uh, Tamar, I've got one more son, but he's too young to get married. Why don't you go live with your family? And then when the time comes, uh, I'll send for you, and then you can marry my youngest son when he grows up. What a bad situation. And uh, so Judah has no intention of having his youngest son marry here because he's convinced Tamar's cursed. So then Tamar says, fine. And, and Judah had legal obligations towards her that he is totally ignoring. I want to be really clear. Judah's the bad guy in this story. And so Tamar tricks Judah into thinking that she's a prostitute and they sleep together and she gets pregnant and Judah's going to kill her because, you know, hey, you know, you've been, you've been out, you know, fooling around. And then she has proof that, no, you were the guy. Now, again, I don't have time to get into the culture, but that's messy. Wait, what? Your, your father, your father married... His, your father fooled around with his son's wife, widow, and that's how you came to be. That's a messy family history. No matter what way, no matter what culture you're in, that's a messy family history. And then it talks about Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife, right? David and Bathsheba. It's a very well-known story. It, David versus Goliath is King David's highlights. David versus Bathsheba is his big downfall. Versus Bathsheba is the wrong thing to say. Bathsheba is the innocent party in all this. I, I really, really hate when I've heard her portrayed in some Christian preaching or teaching or writing as sort of a seductress. That's not the case at all. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Instead of leading the people in, in defending their land against their enemies, he was back home living it easy. He was up late at night. Nothing good happens up, you know, nothing good happens past 10 p.m. So he's up late at night and, and he looks over and he sees this gal bathing. He's peeping Tom. And he sends for her and the power dynamics, she can't say no to the king and he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant and so to cover it all up, David kills her husband. That's messy. That's a messy story. Who's your mom? Well, she used to be this other guy's wife, but then my dad killed her husband and because he was fooling around with my mom, and that's how I, Solomon, came to be. And then King Manasseh is mentioned in there. You can go read 2 Chronicles chapter 33. The worst king Judah ever had. The worst king, the most wicked king, the most evil king. Who is your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? Oh, he was the worst king we ever had. Like, there, there's people to be proud of, right, in your, in your history, in your ancestry, right? And then there's people like, uh, not so much. Can you imagine being the, the people there? Hitler had family in England, and after the war, like the rest of your life, you are the family, you are the last living descendant heir of the Hitler family. That's bad. Am I comparing King Manasseh to Hitler? A little bit. Uh, in the sense of like wickedness. This guy was a wicked king. He, he murdered his own children. He murdered children. Wicked man. So Jesus' family tree has the obscure 
It has the messy. And, and you know what? As far as I know, I don't know of any family member that was a murderer or a prostitute, but it probably was. You go back far enough, there was. But there's a lot of mess. My grandmother, you know, whenever I read about the woman at the well, I think of my grandmother because that's who she was. She, she was a woman who just had all kinds of mess in her life and brokenness and, and, and generational sin just ran rampant in that part of my family. So you got the obscure and you got the messy and maybe you're identifying with some of this stuff. Hey, Jesus had that in his eye. I've got something like that in my own life. And there's also the marginalized. Ruth, uh, who, who was... Uh, the, the grandmother of King David. She was an immigrant. Her husband was Jewish and who came to the land of Moab where Ruth was from. And then they got married and then he died. And so her mother-in-law says, I'm going back to Israel to my people. And so she came with. So she is an immigrant. She has to learn a new language, a new culture, a new custom. She is uh, only able to survive by what Israel had as a, a sort of a, a welfare program back then. She's marginalized. She's living on the, the edges, the margins of Jewish society. And then Jesus himself, because all of this ends with Jesus, right? But we're going to see in, in a week or two, when we get to Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was a refugee. I don't feel like I'm, I'm giving anything ahead. Spoiler alert, you know. But Joseph and Mary are going to have to flee Israel because King Herod is trying to kill any threat to his kingdom, and he hears that their king has been born. So he sends troops to kill every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. And so they flee Israel, and they go to Egypt, and they live as refugees. And we have a refugee crisis worldwide. And Jesus would have been one of those obscure, marginalized refugees living in the mess why does Matthew want us to know all of this? Why does Matthew want us to know all this? It's his, it's his gospel account. This is my account of the good news of Jesus. This is what I've seen. This is what I know. Why is it that Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, wants us to see this? Matthew, who was there in that room hiding thinking Jesus had died and then he had an encounter an experience with somebody he believed to be Jesus who had died and was now living again why does he start his gospel with this why does he want me to know about Jesus's obscure and messy and marginalized family tree I think there are three reasons there might be more but these are the three reasons I have the first is that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is born of a virgin. We'll get into that more next week as we, it's kind of nice starting the Gospel of Matthew in December, right? As we're moving our way towards Christmas, the virgin birth is part of the Christmas story. It says at the end of this genealogy, verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Why is it that Matthew wants us to know all this? Because he wants you to know that Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't say Joseph, 
the father of Jesus. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. Also, also, verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon and after the exile, Jehoiakim, the father of Sheltiai, Sheltiai, the father of Zerubbabel, so on, so on. Why was Zerubbabel not king over Israel? Why was he only the governor? Why was there not a, a king from the house of David after the Babylonian exile? When the Jewish people came back and they're in their, in their own land, why don't they say, okay, who has the claim to the throne? Why didn't they? Because they knew, they knew who the descendants of David were. Why didn't they go back to that? In the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah spoke for God and God was saying this, no descendant of Jehoiakim, and uh, Jeconiah is another name, you know, like Greek from Hebrew, right? So no descendant of Jehoiakim or Jeconiah will sit on the throne of David. So Joseph was a descendant of King David. He had royal lineage, but God had said nobody from that line will sit on the throne of David. So what Matthew was saying, and it's not us, remember, it's for a primarily Hebrew or Jewish audience. He's saying Jesus could not be the Messiah. He could not be the king of the Jews if Joseph was his father. And so he's making a case to his people, establishing Jesus as their Messiah. The second reason I think Matthew wants us to know this is that he wants us to to know Jesus' family story. That was very important to them. And, and you know, different cultures and different times and different places in history have valued different things. But there are things that are very important. It's like, for, my, for me, for my people, for my culture, for my experience, it's important that you know these things about me. And if somebody feels like it's important that I know something about them specifically, it's like, okay, it's important to them, I want to know. Matthew wants us to know Jesus' family story, first because it was important to his culture. In fact, we know that this is not, we know that this is not a, a complete genealogy. We know that there are generations skipped. Uh, from Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, remember that in, in ancient uh, Hebrew, they didn't have a word for grandfather. They didn't have a word for grandfather. Abraham was their father. All of them. Abraham was their father. All of them traced their lineage back to Abraham. They didn't say our great, 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 you know, so on, so on, so on, grandfather. No, Abraham was their father. So your father's father was still your father. You know, what was your grandfather's name? Well, my grandfather's name was Bob. My great-grandfather's name was Alex, but I would have just said my father Alex. You know, Bob, the son of Alex, whose son was James, whose son was Adam but they still would have been your father. But we know that there is a, a gap between Solomon and Boaz. So this is not a complete family history, but it adds up 14 between Abraham to David, David to the exile, exile to Jesus. It's 14, 14, 14. 14 is a big number in, in their culture and their thought. And actually some, I'm not, 
I've taken classes in ancient Hebrew, but I'm not an expert at all. But I've read some guys who've said that there's actually uh, an argument to say that this was a, a sort of a memory device, the way that it was lined up, 14, 14, 14. And then um, the way that it flowed, it was to make it easy to memorize. I don't read this and go, oh, that's easy to memorize. But if you're a native Hebrew speaker, it could have been. Matthew says it's important to me that you know this. It's important that you know Jesus was born of a virgin. It's important that you know Jesus' backstory. And I think part of the reason it's important for us to know that is because Matthew wants us to know that there is hope. That Jesus' backstory is full of the obscure and it's full of the messy and it's full of the marginalized. And if you identify there and you say, hey, I see that. I see the mess in my own family, in my own community, in my own, what shaped me. I was, I was brought up, I feel marginalized. I feel like that's where I came from. I feel like I'm just living in obscurity. Matthew's saying, hey, look at Jesus. And when Jesus calls people, he's calling us out of this world of darkness, yes, but he's also calling us oftentimes out of obscurity to do great things for him. You might look and say, man, my world is so messy. How could I be used of God? Because God's God, and he calls people out of the mess, and he uses them. You might say, man, I am just marginalized. Like, I don't feel like I could be used by God. I don't feel like I could connect within the church. You don't want to know about my brokenness. I know about the brokenness of these people, and I know how God used them, how God used people that came out of that marginalization, including Jesus, our Lord himself, born into poverty, born with a messy family backstory, born with the circle of scandal around him because, you know, we know that he was born of a virgin, but people are like, yeah, you know, Joseph and Mary. All of that mess going on, and that's where God entered into this world. You know, as we come into Christmas and the holiday season, I I think a lot about the holiday table because there is so much dysfunction and mess and all of these things going on. You know, honestly, the fact that I've used the word marginalized and refugee, there might be somebody that just wants to tune me out because they say, oh, he's some woke liberal talking about, you know, talking talking about refugees, you know, that's what liberals do. And then somebody else, because I've talked about like, you know, the mess of growing up in, in, in some of these kind of things, and they say, oh, he's just one of those conservatives who's just moralizing about everything, and why should we even care if Rahab was a prostitute? I'm just telling you, this is all real. And when we enter the holiday season, we have mess in our own lives, we have mess in our families. I, I don't I, I, I mean, I know about two brothers who are in their early 30s, both of whom claim to be Christians, and they haven't shared a meal together in almost four years. It's not just COVID that brought the mess. COVID just showed us more of what was going on. And in this world of strife, of mess, of marginalization, of feeling obscured, of feeling overlooked, and there's Jesus shining his light in saying, let me work. Let's let him work in our lives. There's nothing that God can't overcome. There's no part of your story. There's no part of your backstory. There's no part of your mess. There's no part of the world around us that God cannot work in. Let's invite Jesus to do that work. Well, as we end our time in prayer this morning, I want to read from the book of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. 
cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would fill us full with love so that our hearts just sincerely are full of you. Love comes from you, Lord. Help us to have that fullness this day, this moment as we go into this week. Lord, help us to hate what is evil and not just look at what is evil elsewhere, but hate what is evil in our own hearts so that you could drive out that that wickedness, that sin, and fill us with the peace and perfection of you. Help us to cling to what is good, Lord. Whatever is good, whatever is true, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, help us to lean into those things so that we could be devoted to one another in love. We could honor one another. Lord, help us as a church family to be a family that loves and honors each other. Joyful in hope, patient, faithful in prayer. Lord, help us to be aware of the needs around us so that we can take care of each other. Lord, I pray that this holiday season we would learn in a new way what it means to practice hospitality that comes from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I want to close with this invitation. If you know somebody who is in need this holiday season, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. One of the things we found as a church is that there are programs if you're already in crisis, but over the last several holidays, we've helped people kind of stay out of crisis. So if you know somebody who's in need, who needs, uh, you know, hey, we need help with the presents. We need help with the, with the light bill this month. Hey, we, we, need, we, don't, we can't afford a Christmas tree. Hey, we've got this issue going on. Let me know. Adam at faithonhill.com is my email. Let us know how we can practice hospitality as a church and how we can love each other and honor each other this Christmas season. God bless you.